Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. You're in the right place for all things regenerative living, ecological restoration, permaculture, and natural building. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. In this show, it's my job to interview leaders, innovators, and rebels on the cutting edge of their fields as we look for solutions to our generation's most urgent challenges and share these techniques and information so that you can join us in creating a healthy and abundant world for everyone. So let's get started. Without a doubt, the most important mission of our lifetimes will be regenerating this planet and creating a new culture based on care and stewardship for all life. But it can be hard to know where to start. After more than 150 episodes of speaking to leaders and innovators in the regenerative fields around the world, and working with clients and organizations to help them reach their regenerative goals, I've compiled many lists of essential skills and steps that anyone can take today to begin their journey towards a brighter future for themselves their families and communities, and for the ecosystems that support them. Every two weeks, I'll send you a new regenerative skill that you can develop and expand on in your own life right away. What's more is that I'm creating a community of skill builders like you who are sharing their results and stories of success to inspire you towards greater action. You can sign up right now in the show notes for this episode or on the homepage at AbundantEdge.com. Start your week off right by building your skills for a regenerative future. In my opinion, permaculture has done an incredible job of raising awareness of natural land management techniques and teaching people to observe and read patterns from the natural world to inform their interactions with the environment. But it often gets criticized for being impractical when it comes to applying its methods to profitable farming enterprises. There's a long-running line of questioning on this show, especially when I'm speaking with producers and farmers about where they have to compromise their choices for the earth with the needs of their businesses and the efficiency required to turn a profit. So to help me get to the bottom of this paradox, I spoke to Lauren Leyendijk, a certified teacher of permaculture with over 17 years of practical experience in permaculture design, sustainability, and horticulture. Lauren has also studied and has loads of experience in the fields of organic and biodynamic farming, arboriculture, agroecology, key line design, holistic management, natural building, and the soil food web. And he's also a founding partner of Permaculture Design International, an international design collaborative with the express goal of increasing the professionalism and adoption of permaculture globally, especially with larger scale projects. He and his wife, Aubrey Falk, also co-founded the nonprofit organization Surfers Without Borders in 2008, which promotes practical solutions to ocean pollution through regenerative design. Now, in this interview, we break down some of the most important ways that permaculture can be applied, especially to small farms, not only to improve the health of the ecology on the site, like it's known to do, but also the financial bottom line of the business owner. Lauren explains how a lot of common practices and teachings in permaculture, like crop diversification, building soil health, and harvesting water on site can make a huge difference in the viability of a farm. We also talk about what a regenerative food system might look like at the community level, and how people can get started wherever they are by taking simple steps in the right direction. Towards the end, we also nerd out about all the amazing plants and foods that grow in our respective climates, since both northeastern Spain, where I live, and southwestern California, where he is, are analog climates to one another, and there's a ton of overlap in what we see and grow around us. I really enjoyed this chat and can tell just how thoroughly Lauren knows his stuff. A mutual friend of ours and previous guest on the podcast, Nicholas Bertner from the School of Permaculture, was the one who originally put me in touch with Lauren and turned me on to his work. So a big thank you and a shout out to Nick for making the connection. 
With that out of the way, I'll turn things over now to Lauren. Hey, Lauren, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks, Oliver. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Pleasure to be hey, here. Hey, it's my pleasure. Yeah, like I was put in touch with you by a couple of previous guests on the podcast and you come very highly recommended and I'm really excited to talk to you about your work and how permaculture is still relevant in kind of a modern farming and regenerative farming context. So what do you say we just jump into the questions? Absolutely. Let's do it. All right. So before we dive too deep into your actual work, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your personal background and your path into botany and tree care specifically? Yeah. So, well, as a child, my my mother really is the one who introduced me to gardening. She always had a garden when I was a kid. And I remember we had a, a king snake that lived in the garden. We named him Stevie. And so this was like, my connection to nature and food production at really young age. And it really carried through, uh, through the majority of my life. And my mother's an artist. And then my father is a scientist. He's a geologist. And, and so those two disciplines kind of were different hemispheres of the brain, but the, the cohesion and the, the common ground there was designed. And so through college, I was interested in, in biology and botany, and, and I was fortunate to have a very loose structure in college and have um, not have to take many prerequisites through a specific program I was taking at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And so I was allowed a lot of freedom, and that allowed me to really explore more of the artistic side of science, if, there, if, if you will, you know, and this, this bridge between the two hemispheres. And so... I was introduced to permaculture design in Antarctica of all places. I had gotten a summer job out of college uh, to run the hydroponic greenhouse in McMurdo Station, Antarctica. And that was just a really, obviously, very different context for producing food. Um, but Antarctica and the, the base itself is such a microcosm kind of for the world and just it's a it's a really closed loop system or it has the potential to be a closed loop system and so somebody there said hey you know permaculture would be we, we should really look into permaculture principles and techniques here in antarctica and recycle our waste and you know because there was there are a lot of questionable uh practices going on there it was run by military and military contractors and and a lot of waste wasn't being utilized. So it was the very beginning of the internet. This was in 1998, 99, winter season, uh, summer season in Antarctica. And so I started researching permaculture. I said, wow, this is really interesting. And it so happened that I was, I, you get a New Zealand visa when you go to Antarctica, so you have to go through New Zealand. It's a New Zealand dependency, the American base. And, or it's it's that Americans have access to Antarctica through New Zealand. So I came back to New Zealand with with some money in my pocket, saved up from working in in Antarctica, and uh, signed up for a permaculture course. Um, there was one happening on the South Island, and that was kind of you know the the rest is history, if you will. It was I was fortunate to to find permaculture straight out of college, um, having you know not really chosen a career path at that point. I knew I was interested in plants and, and permaculture just really introduced this um, 
it was a perfect blend of art and science, you know, so I call it the art and science of design, of designing human settlements. And, and it really was um, an eye opener for me. You know, it was, it was very cathartic, but I was, I was young, you know, I was in my early twenties. So I had, um, I had that opportunity. I was really lucky to be able to find it early on. And then I, I continued my studies in New Zealand with the um, biodynamic farming course with Peter Proctor. And that was like taking it down, uh, taking it to a whole nother level, um, discussing kind of the occult nature of farming and, and the subtle energies. And, and that really uh, just gave me kind of a, um, a very interesting and different perspective than I had gotten in college, you know, with more of a reductionist mindset. And that was always my struggle in college was, was things seemed to be, it, it, in order to study something, they seemed to want to break it into smaller and smaller pieces. And what really interested me was seeing the bigger picture. And so I, I was always kind of in a conflict with the, an internal conflict with the, the path of study in, in science and college and, and permaculture and, and biodynamics really offered uh, a more holistic and a, and a bigger picture perspective that I had been seeking through college. So I was able to take the, the knowledge, you know, the really specific reductionist knowledge that I think is still useful um, that I gained in college and sort of apply it to more of a systems thinking and a holistic thinking approach. Mm. So, so then I, I came back and I'm in our teachers in the permaculture course gave, made us, uh, take a pledge. It was Robin Clayfield and Rabina McCurdy. Um, and they made us take a pledge. Um, we sent ourselves a letter. Um, well, we, we wrote a letter to ourselves and, and they sent it to us a year later. And in the letter, it, it said, you know, we were writing to ourselves, what are you going to do with your life in the next year? And, and I had said that I wanted to focus on soil building and soil health. And so, uh, and coming back to the United States after my, my stint in Antarctica, which I extended for a little surfing vacation, <laughs> post working 54 hours a week for four <laughs> months straight, um, I got home and, and I, I had an opportunity to manage a 10 acre property that was kind of a diversified orchard here in Santa Barbara, California, where I'm, I'm from. And um, about, you know, six months into that, I received this letter and I was actively composting and, you know, building garden beds and plant, interplanting vegetable crops in between the rows of trees. So um, to get this letter was really affirming that I was, I was on my path and it was a really powerful um, sort of reflection to me and and it was is empowering to 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 keep me on my path and so that was in 1999 I started my business Santa Barbara Organics with the goal to help anyone and everyone and and it ended up being mostly residential clients help them design their their edible landscapes and that was kind of a new thing that was that was trending was this edible landscaping in the in 2000 early 2000s right. and so um and permaculture was kind of still new you know i just missed bill mollison he did a course here in 97 so it, he planted the seed locally and and so the movement here with uh wesley rowe and margie bushman the santa barbara permaculture network they started really pushing permaculture locally and and um we sort of 
teamed up on on some talks and whatnot, and I, I kind of became, you know, the new kid on the block here, helping people actually get into the nuts and bolts of it. And and so I started doing designs and installations for people on their on whatever scale that really was. And this was kind of coupled with my work. It was based on the work I did on the the 10-acre orchard where I I lived for a couple of years. Um, so that's kind of a brief history. And now we're, I'm here 20 years in, um, having done, you know, several hundred uh, residential and small farm and even medium to large scale farm projects, uh, you know, anything ranging from, you know, a couple of vegetable boxes to um, super large scale sheep stations in New Zealand, kind of, you know, several thousand acre uh, projects. So um, I kind of have a really broad range of experience, um, but the majority of my experience is really working on the smaller scale, kind of more the human scale and, and hyper local. Uh, so that's, that's where I am now. Um, and I've, I've really transitioned more towards nursery work. So, um, having, I became a certified arborist and I do, I specialize in fruit tree care. And so that was kind of the niche that I found. I really have a love for trees and I really love fruit because I love to eat it. So <laughs> I thought, well, <laughs> might as well take care of fruit trees because you inevitably end up with a basket of fruit <laughs> here and there. So, um, and there weren't, there weren't anybody, there weren't any companies specializing in fruit trees. You know, the arborists mostly take trees down as opposed to plant them. So I, I kind of filled this little niche where I come in and consult for people who have small fruit orchards or, um, you know, a couple trees in their yard or even up to having managed uh, several larger um, monocultural orchard plantings, um, specifically avocado and citrus. That's kind of the, those are the crops around here. But for sake of running on, <laughs> that's, that's where I am now um, in my company. And um, having branched out into some other design forays and some other um, nonprofit adventures in in between there, so so that's a yeah a brief history of how I got to where I am now. <laughs> well, so let's explore that more, especially on the farm scale side. So in this series, I've already spoken to a lot of people who are managing large farms and are enacting you know large scale soil building and transforming the way that food production is done around the world. But a lot of people, especially right now, are looking into how they can produce food in the scale that they have access to. And most people don't own large farms. And so tell me about some of the differences in what you look to do in a design for a small scale farm in contrast to something that you would do for, say, a residential landscape food production. What are those key differences? Yeah, I think it's really, you know, one thing I've learned through design and specifically holistic management is this the concept of context and not just context in the, in a you know w uh, geographic or meteorological sense but m in a psychological and a moral and ethical sense uh, having to do with the the human elements the human participants in the system so really it's there's there's no like one size fits all or you know silver bullet for designing properties because it really is based on the humans that are managing it so this is this is kind of a a really big um, 
catharsis or like an aha moment for me in my design career is understanding this context. And so that's kind of a, it's very nuanced and it's often very hard to kind of tease out of people is to figure out what their context is because most people tend to want to focus straight in on, well, what type of tree should I plan or, or how, where should I put my veggie garden? They want to go straight into the details. And, and so it's, it is often harder and it's not quite as sexy maybe to discuss your, your morals and your ethics and your, you know, your future resource base, et cetera, and your holistic context. So we kind of have to um, get it out of people through different methods, but that's really honestly the, the most important um, piece in designing your edible landscape and your, your food production system is, is how you integrate into it and how does it fit with your values. And, and so, because often I've seen people design systems that are way beyond their, their management capacity or their skill level. And then those systems fail and then they get a sense of, of, of failure themselves. And that can be really disempowering and it kind of has, you know, it can take a while. It's almost traumatic for people to fail at like if they kill a tomato plant or something, people will sometimes not plant another tomato plant for many years because mm-hmm. of that failure. So this is, it's kind of a nuanced thing where um, you're really, you're really trying to dive into and in saying you as the person designing your own system, you know, how, why am I doing this? You know, what, what is my, what are my goals? Um, how much time, you know, what kind of a lifestyle do I want to create? How does this activity um, contribute to the, the world I want to create? You know, because it is, it's one piece in the big puzzle of life, um, albeit, you know, from my opinion, an important piece. Um, so that's kind of the big, like, meta framework for how to approach designing systems. So, and so what's the overlap? That's the overlap. It could, because on any scale, your context is important. Um, and so somebody like Gabe Brown, who's farming thousands of acres, his con- uh, what he's doing fits his context. And that's why he's been successful. Because he had maybe had a very good internal compass and maybe also had some guidance along the way. But he knew what he wanted to do and why he wanted to do it, and he did it within his his means, within his resources available to him. And so that's why he's been successful. So that's really, because everybody, we, we just all want to be successful in what we're doing. So I think that is the most important piece, is to design a system that fits your goals, visions, lifestyle, and, and the world you want to create. So, um, that that's kind of the overlap that's the big overlap but i mean then we can get into the nuts and bolts of it you know because it's really just a matter of scale like your your quarter acre lot in in a residential context is really kind of the microcosm of a, a thousand acre farm you can have many of the same elements in this in similar relationships or in the same relationships you know these these mutually beneficial relationships um like you know the the livestock moving through after you harvest the crop 
you know, on the, on the broad scale, it might be, it might be ruminants moving through on the small scale. It might be fowl like chickens moving through. Um, so, but these same principles apply to, to the different scales. It's just, you know, uh, one, one is human scale and human powered and another might be, you know, powered by machinery and, and dinosaur farts or, or diesel. So, um, that's, that, does that answer uh, a bit of your question? And then we can kind of dive deeper into it. Sure. I mean, so one of the things that I learned through investigating this series and talking to other people who really understand the industry of agriculture itself is that, you know, sometimes it can seem daunting, especially if you don't have access to much land or the capital to get a bigger farm started, which pretty much everybody who's trying to get into farming is in that situation. You think that, you know, you have to compete with these large agribusinesses to be solvent as a small enterprise, but it actually turns out that only about 30% of the world's food is produced through industrial means and with big machinery like that. And actually 70% or more of the food that all of us consume are produced by these smaller farmers. They make up the bulk of really what feeds the world. And... I found that really inspiring, partly because I've done a good bit of farming in my life as well, but also because it it gives like a perspective of, of what you can do with a small piece of land that is intensively managed and really stewarded correctly. And it gets really difficult to manage something that is, you know, hundreds or thousands of acres large without machinery. And it's a reason why all throughout human history, we never manage farms like that. And so knowing that you know, the, the systems that you can de- design, the, the way that you can condense your resources and manage things that much more intensively in a small area must come into play with a lot of design considerations. And what are some of the ways that you help to guide clients and people who come to you for advice to understand sort of the strength of working with a smaller context rather than immediately thinking that you need to scale up an operation in order to have a farm and produce a lot of food. Yeah, that's, that's a huge issue. And I think it's, it's incredibly, it's unnatural. The, the current situation, this, this dichotomy that you've outlined and highlighted this, um, the contrast between industrial industrially produced food and industrial ag- agriculture, the scale that works on and the true, like where most of the food comes from, which is more human scale systems. And so I, I was recently listening to another podcast with the, you know, Joel Salatin is on Joe Rogan, which was, which was really great to hear, you know, Joe's kind of mainstream and Joel is, you know, the lunatic farmer and he, he they were discussing this, this concept of scale and in, you know, his point, and I'm going to echo this point is we don't necessarily need to scale up. We don't need to make the large farms um, scaled. You know, we don't need to apply permaculture necessarily to the farms or, or we do, but what we really need to do is we need to have more, we need to scale up the small farms. We need to have many, many more, small farms and we need to have many many more even backyards producing food because as you've said and it's you know 70 plus percent of the world's food is produced on the human scale it's not produced on the industrial scale and so this this should be a really empowering um data point for 
for everyone to realize that, oh, well, it's actually, you know, normal people with normal sized lots that are growing the majority of the world's food. It's not, you know, the the 10,000 acre corn farmer with these huge combines. You know, they while they are feeding the world, but we also know that in order to keep prices high, a lot of that corn can be dumped in the ocean at certain points. So there's when you get into the commodity market, there's all sorts of really weird things that go on in order to keep prices and supply in. It's just I don't I don't I'm not going to pretend to understand it completely. But your point is that on the small scale these systems can be so much more complex because they are manageable because you can on a human scale, you can integrate so many more elements into a smaller system because it can be cared for because you can actually, you can actually manage these relationships in a real way in real time um, and I think it can be done on the very large scale, and it has been done, obviously, you know, with examples like Gabe Brown and, and Mark Shepard, and there's, there's s- several other larger scale examples of, far, you know, farm scale permaculture. And I do think, you know, to be totally clear, this is, that's a critical and very important uh, movement and, and something that I have also been involved with. But this, it, it has been sort of this, awareness of what you said, this data point that the majority of the world's food is produced on the small scale, it's produced on the human scale. So how I help people get towards that, again, really depends on their context because it's different for everyone. You know, some people say, I want to grow all my food. I'm going to, you know, I just had recently had a client and said, I'm going to tear out everything and I want to grow all our food. And, you know, they had the resources and the time to do that. Other people say, well, I, I can really just want to start with one raised bed, you know. And so you kind of, you have to tease it along and you have to really um, work within people's means. And so it is, it's different for everyone. Um, and really what I try to do is focus on their priorities and and their goals because, if we don't work with where people are at, they're, they're less likely to succeed. And it's these little successes that, that empower people to move forward and take the next step to add that next element. So, okay, they have their one raised bed and they're able to produce, you know, some tomatoes and a zucchini and they're like, oh, okay, I'm going to put in another raised bed and I'm going to plant some trees. And then next they're going to maybe do some roof rainwater catchment or a gray water system and, and install a chicken coop, you know, so it kind of like, it, it's a gateway, you know, as they said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, permaculture is a gateway to farming. Um, that, that meme that was going around, but it, it's really, so again, it's different for everyone. Um, and so a lot of it's really just coaching and, and trying to figure out where the, each person's context is and and really this is kind of the fact that we have the privilege to discuss you know the context and choices it really is a privilege because we do live in a at least you and I both live in a culture where we can go to the store and buy food at least 
at this point. (laughs) (laughs) See how much longer that privilege is around. (laughs) Exactly. Um, And and actually this has been a really big, big wake up call for a lot of people, I think, but but it is, it is a privilege, you know, and to be totally clear, you know, contrasting to where you came from, we were discussing your time in Guatemala where people are subsistence farmers and they're living on a very, very small budget and they really don't have a choice. And they, they, they have to grow food, otherwise they're going to starve. You know, so we, we kind of live in a culture where, um, you know, permaculture is kind of nice to have for most people. It's not, right. a, need, it's right. not a need to have. But that, that said, our cultures are the ones that consume the majority of the world's resources. So it really is a need to have because we, we kind of directly and indirectly affect you know, habitat degradation and, and cause desertification and, and contribute to slave labor the world over with our lifestyle. Right. So, and, and a lot of it's based on food consumption and, and, and buying it in the store. So not nobody, I mean, you ask nine out of 10 people on the street, you know, do you support slavery? And they'll say no. I mean, maybe 99 out of 100 or, or 100 out of 100. Let's hope. But then they'll, <laughs> yeah, right. But then they'll go to the store and they'll buy food that's been raised with slave labor. Right. But they just, there's a, there's a disconnect because they, they haven't gone down that rabbit hole. But that's why we, we as a privileged culture need to raise our food. And I know I'm kind of preaching to the choir here. So point being that, we we have to encourage people and 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 that's that's part of the education around this of of how everything's connected is to bring bring to people's awareness the the reasons why we need to like everyone should be participating in their food system at some level hopefully producing all of their fresh vegetables within their or or purchasing them within their community so that it's not that hard. I don't think people realize. Well, I think people are finally starting to realize that uh, the space it takes and the energy that it takes to produce a ton of veggies in most climates. Granted, some, especially northern climates like Minnesota, where I grew up, like there's only a handful of frost-free months, and so you're you're going to have to figure out how to preserve them if you want to get a year-round supply. But in a lot of places where a lot of the populations are concentrated. It doesn't take that much space. It's not that difficult to get a lot of your veggie needs, especially. Um, and then you can start to compound on that and it becomes a, a more resilient food network like you were talking about with uh, Joel Salatin's podcast. And he was on my show a couple of weeks prior to that and echoed a lot of the same messages, even kind of more from uh, an initial reaction to all of these changes that were happening from the COVID fallout and, and you know the lockdowns and stuff. And Really, it's a matter of creating a resilient network that involves community, that involves small producers. And certainly in the beginning, we're still going to be importing a lot of resources from further away from these larger uh, rural farms and even still from overseas. But as we regain the sovereignty and the independence, realizing that everybody can, can contribute a little bit to it, There's not going to be a situation in the future where one big shakeup like this can destabilize an entire food network. The food network will be much more decentralized and much more independent and at a community level. And 
though there may be some losses in convenience, like it may be really unaffordable to get oranges in February from the Southern Hemisphere, what you kind of regain by having that resilience is not these sort of panic moments that a lot of communities are starting to enter now. Absolutely. It's we're, and you said regain, and that is exactly what's happening because these systems existed prior to the go big movement of the, the 50s through 70s of farming. You know, most food was hyper-local prior to the advent of industrial agriculture you know, you, every farm or a, a homestead and pretty much everyone lived on homesteads. So they would have these integrated systems where they had the dairy cow, they had the pig to clean up the waste, they had the chickens to eat the veggie scraps and produce it, you know, and then their row crops and then maybe a cash crop and they were growing their fresh vegetables and they were growing their staple crops. And so this is, we're, we're really kind of realizing that that was a good system. You know, and it was incredibly decentralized. You know, you had processing centers in almost every community because every community has an agrarian base because that's that's how we get our food. So these these systems are are we're we're now realizing, like I said, well that maybe that wasn't such a bad idea, and and we do need to decentralize uh, processing facilities. And we need to decentralize production as well, because there's incredibly so much more resilience in having everyone on the block, or at least let's say 70% of the people on the block have big gardens versus, you know, 7% of the people on the block have big gardens. Because when, when and if, you know, the supply chain completely breaks down, um, you know, then you can rely on your neighbors and then we can, we can start sharing. And that's, there's so many other like benefits that that come from that. Not so many from, others, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Physical nourishment, but you know we look at all the different forms of capital that we're building there, and social capital and cultural capital are so huge. And we really, you know, that awareness has been a, another aha moment for me. Was these different concepts of capital and this this concept of social capital is so powerful. And I agree. You know, yeah, I've been going back to those a lot myself. Um, very powerful. Yeah. So, so I think. No, no, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, you're absolutely right. It is much easier than people think. And, and people, you know, start somewhere, start with, with some, uh, a safe to fail. Like, uh, I'll try something, you know, I'll try planting a couple of tomato plants and a zucchini plant or some chard and kale, depending on what climate you're in and what season it is you know, try a safe to fail experiment. And, you know, YouTube is your friend in these days, <laughs> you know, we have to use uh, uh, technology to its advantage. So many good so, resources out there. Yeah. So many good resources out there, including your podcast and, and go, you know, figure it out, do some, a little bit of research and, and start there and build on those successes. And I think that is, the most important thing we can do right now, and that's what COVID has really highlighted, is that is how fragile our food system is and how important these these decentralized and hyper local food movements are because, you know, at the end of the day we're all human and we all need to eat and it creates community. Cult food is a center point of culture and you travel to intact cultures throughout the world and that's you know, the culinary traditions are so important. And we've kind of lost that, you know, we have 
such a amalgamation of, of, of cultures, which is, which is amazing and beautiful. Um, but we really, we can build a new culture of food production. We can build a new culture of local resilient, of resilient cities, resiliency and resilient cities and, and, you know, feed ourselves from within the city limits. That was one of the questions that Joel was talking about, you know, that Joe asked Joel, and I really look forward to hearing your interview with him too. That's great to hear you interview Joel as well. Um, you know, Joe asked, can we feed Los Angeles from within, uh, you know, locally? And I did a little research for our local community in Santa Barbara and found that the city owned 10,000 acres of parks. And most of those parks are in, are in grass or, you know, in lawn mm -hmm. and using it, using two to four acre feet per acre of water per year, an incredible amount of water, the same amount of water that it would take to grow an orchard or a farm. So I feel like we are in this, this really, really ripe and fertile moment to use a pun, a fertile moment of reclaiming the commons. And, and I feel like, we we need to as a culture reclaim these open spaces that are owned owned by all of us owned by municipalities and convert them into food production and this is happening in a lot of inner cities throughout the the where where there's a real need you know where people are food insecure like in Detroit and and other places in in the Midwest and we but we need to replicate that model we need to have thousands of small farms from a quarter acre to four acres inside city limits and within the, the urban rural boundary, we need to scale up the number of small farms. We don't need to scale up, you know, permaculture necessarily. That, that's the scale up of permaculture really, is more small farms producing food locally. That's what we need to scale up. Definitely. Now, I want to explore a topic with you that I know someone with your experience has thought about. And as I've kind of gained some experience in working with clients and especially at the farm scale, I've started to think about a lot more. And it comes from like this concept that Carol Sanford explores in her new book and, and talking about what regeneration really is and how it's a paradigm shift from thinking about First of all, starting with, you know, a destructive mindset and then moving towards sustainability. And a lot of people still get regeneration wrong because they keep putting their agenda on what nature should be or what it should return to, even if it is a much healthier state than it's currently at. And to progress to a truly regenerative mindset, you have to start to think about what nature wants to return to on its own. Now, obviously, that's kind of an abstract concept, but it's worth balancing with the agenda that we have for food production, for abundance in our landscapes, and for you know what we consider resilience because it's mostly in relationship to how we currently live. And so how do you think about balancing what nature wants to be, maybe in the context of trying to get back to the health and the species balance of what it was like before we domineered the landscape and balancing that with what we need to get as a yield and the resources that we have to have to sustain ourselves within that system? 
Well, absolutely. Um, we're the most common mistake is to impose your own ideas onto the landscape. So we, we have an attachment to what we think the system should look like. And we impose that as opposed to protracted and thoughtful observation, which is really the foundation of permaculture is to observe the landscape and observe the ecosystems without judgment, with humility as as a critical thinker and work with the systems that are are suitable for that context for that climatological ecological context and that is a total antithesis to how farming is done now where you've got the imposition of a, a system that is often completely foreign in that context for example in the Kiyama Valley here, which is nearby me, they're growing carrots in the desert. The reason they grow the carrots in the desert is because the, the soil is super sandy and there's so much sunlight and heat that they can grow year round. But they're overhead irrigating with three to 30,000 year old fossil water that's mined from thousands of feet below the surface to grow bunny love and earthbound farm carrots. Oh, you're talking and about the one out by Quail Springs, right? Exactly. Yes, and I've now been that's there. Like, that's expanded tremendously, presumably since you were last through here. And so that's the antithesis of, of protracted and thoughtful observation and, mm -hmm. and regeneration. And, and it, I think it's a cultural thing because our, again, food is culture and our cultures have a, um, we're so used to consuming these foods that we've been consuming, but a lot of the foods we consume are on, have to be on life support in order to survive. Mm -hmm. And by life support, I mean irrigation, fertilization, tillage, all of that's just life support. All these, they're like, you know, patients in a hospital ward, these vegetables growing in an, an extremely hostile environment, you know, not suited to them at all. And so they're just, <laughs> but what, so what we need to do is shift our culture of consumption and shift our diets accordingly. And so as you were talking, I was thinking about this book called um, Tending the Wild, which is uh, by, by M. Cat Anderson. It's a really amazing book. And it's a tome, you know, it's thousands of pages or hundreds of pages, I should say. But it, the story is how the indigenous people were the most sublime horticulturalists to, to ever walk this landscape. Specifically in my region, it was the Shumash people. And so what they worked with nature, they literally worked with nature in taking the native species, the endemic species, and cultivating them for, for example, with oaks. They cultivated them for larger acorns. They would tie the branches down to the ground for ease of harvest. They would do quick flash burns underneath the canopies to kill the oakworms and, and to keep the shrubs from growing up into them. So, and, and they cultivated the camas fields. The camas was like one of the major staple crops of many, many tribes throughout California. And they would expand the camas. They were constantly replanting and improving 
that not only habitat, because these are all native species, but their food supply. So it was this, it, it's a really profound book, but it's so, when you, when you really look at it and think about it, you're like, oh, it makes so much sense that when you come into a climate, the first thing you do when you come into a site is you look around and you see what are the native species growing there? What are the weed species that are thriving? You know, and then you start to look at the ecosystem processes around all that. And that's, that's the foundation for your food system. Mm -hmm. You really have to work, you have to work with what is currently there. And, and in certain cases, there is a lot of opportunity to introduce analogous species. Like, for example, where you are in Spain, you've got, you know, the the dehesa systems and these montados which are the very evolved and and sublimely managed horticultural systems that are rely on some you know agronomic crops you know olive cork oaks um carob the different types of herbs and flowers and grains and then the livestock that grazes, grazes under them specifically the you know like the american pigs um mm -hmm. <laughs> they come around here all the yeah. time <laughs> yeah i bet so and and that's like probably the one of the better examples of at least for a mediterranean climate of a system that works in harmony with nature and that that's really what what regenerative agriculture is is it's farming in harmony with nature so we need to figure out, and, and this is the, the, the gift we've been given of cognitive thinking and, and, and a brain <laughs> is to be able to observe systems and see, see things that thrive and notice connections that are beneficial and magnify those and replicate them and then take these analogs from other climates that are similar to ours and introduce them into our region. So for California, you know, like the Central Valley, I, I, what was it prior? It was a giant oak savanna with, with valley oak, you know, 250-foot canopy, hundred, several hundred-year-old valley oaks that produce these amazing acorns with tule elk and pronghorn antelope grazing underneath. So it was a savanna system. It's, it's very similar to the, the Montado and Dehesa system that's what existed in the central valley of california and so what what would be the best system to replicate or to replace the industrial agriculture it'd be very likely an oak-based savanna system similar to the montados and dehesas at scale and that that's really the trees are you know i'm i'm an arborist so i have a, i'm a little bit <laughs> biased but the lack of trees and the and the decimation of trees in the landscape is one of the the biggest crimes against humanity in the history of our evolution, in my opinion, because trees are the permanent agriculture. Trees are the keystone species in any agricultural system, and they form the foundation. Not only in the ecosystem services they provide are are unlimited, and so what I really have been pushing for here locally, like really specifically is convincing and trying to get data points to convince in quotes 
farmers and ranchers to reintroduce trees into the landscape. And not necessarily native trees, but any tree that will work and that is hardy in our climate. And I've really been focusing on mulberry with livestock systems. Because hmm. mulberry, as you may know, is, is probably very, very likely the original hay was mulberry leaves. And, you know, before they came up with combines and baling oat hay, it was tree hay. Um, mulberry, poplar, willow, aspen, elm, all these in, in Europe specifically. Um, tree hay was the uh, original hay and, and it was the, the foundation, the, the keystone species in the system not only because mulberry provide fruit, but, but because they provide that, that hay and the shade and all those uh, ecosystem functions that we're discussing. So I've been doing uh, leaf sampling, working with the UC Agricultural and Natural Resources um, Division and, and testing the forage quality of the mulberry leaves so that the cattlemen, the, the graziers can look at it and be like, oh, well, mulberry is actually better than alfalfa in terms of, you know, crude protein and, and digestible fiber, et cetera. And it doesn't take nearly the amount of water. And it's a perennial. You don't need to till. And you could actually even grow alfalfa under the mulberry and have two crops. So it's like, Imagine if you had all these fields of alfalfa, which are not going to be planted anymore because of the Sigma Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, and that's a whole other rabbit hole we could go down. The same reason the carrot <laughs> fields are, are in Kuyama or at their death knell. But imagine if you just planted a strip of mulberry every 30 feet in the, in the middle of your alfalfa field, and you integrated the mulberry into that system and started utilizing that as a, as a hay. We, if we replaced alfalfa with mulberry we could probably reduce water use in california by by 50 to 75 percent because alfalfa is the single largest agricultural water user in the state wow and it and, and it, it goes to you know animal feed um mostly for dairy cows and then when you really look at mulberry the dairy production goes up 50 percent with mulberry leaves as a as a a feedstock. Yeah. So, yeah. so it's like it's like this no-brainer. So that's kind of a specific um, example of, you know, and, and that is honestly an imposition of my of what's best in the system, but it's a baby step, and it's because we have to really again work with where people are at. You can't just come to up to the the big Central Valley farmer and say, all right, we're tearing everything out and we're planting valley oaks and going to raise tule elk. And they're going to look at you. They're going to probably pull out the shotgun. Um, <laughs> so we need we need to work with where people are at and take these baby steps and be humble and 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 understand. So I think that's like a regeneration of relationships is in in and that's kind of the the foundation. We need to regenerate the social contracts and the 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 relationship we have with not only our food but our food producers because they have been villainized it's very much so by our sector of the movement of the, the permaculture regenerative ag movement. You know, I feel like we need to come to grips with 
the fact that they still produce, you know, industrial agriculture still produces a large portion, albeit 30%. It's a, they're mostly staple crops and we need to work with where they're at, be humble and, and figure out what's best for the context of not only the site, you know, climatologically soils um, and not, and, and the context of the farmer because they're the one who's on the ground actually making it happen. So that was kind of a roundabout uh, answer for what does regeneration look like and what is true regeneration. Um, it really has to happen on all those different eight levels of, of capital. Um, and, but true ecological regeneration absolutely is, it's, it's like completely opposite of, of what we're doing now with industrial agriculture which is a big bridge to cross. It's a big gap. So we need to start somewhere. Well, I'm really glad that you used that example with the mulberry trees as tree hay and such, because where you live in Santa Barbara is an analog climate for where I am here in northeastern Spain in Catalonia. And it's a fantastic uh, specific example for our two climates, but it also really illustrates that larger point that you were getting at is that there were native systems in place, mostly based around perennial crops that provided all the needs for the people who live there while providing for all of the ecological services, the habitat and everything else that we need for stable ecosystems. Um, and the fact that you focus with and work a lot on tree systems is relevant to most climates around the world, most ecosystems. Now, there are some exceptions where, you know, prairies or tundra and other places with very, very sparse trees were, were much more dominant. But most of the places where people live today have at least a fair spattering of trees in their history as you know, something to look back on, on a healthy state of where the ecosystem was before we started to domineer it. And now that you're focusing a lot on kind of nursery work and breeding trees and helping to make these available for, you know, reforestation operations for orchards and such, that's one of the things that I would really love just for me personally, even to get more information on what advice would you give for someone to look into, first of all, the trees that they need to be breeding that are appropriate for their area that would help to, you know, solve problems and create yields for the context they're in. And then we can later start exploring a little bit about how to get a small nursery started and how to start trialing some of these things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Again, it's the, it's about observation, you know, walk around your neighborhood, walk around the mountains, the, the wildlands, what thrives, what grows with little care and what produces a tangible yield that is valuable. Um, in our climate, you know, here in Santa Barbara, we have so many options. It's really kind of daunting. Um, and that's a, it's a luxury problem really to be, to have such a large, uh, palette, a, a plantless palette that's pages long. Um, so that's where you start first is you start looking at what works locally and what did the, the, the traditional cultures in your specific region grow? What did they produce? You know, here in California, there's the oak I mentioned. That is the probably the single largest food waste in the entire state is billions and maybe trillions of pounds of acorns that fall on the ground every year and just rot. 
And this was the, the cornerstone of, of cultures, millennia of cultures, was acorn meal. And so currently, we just let it fall to the ground because we've got wheat from the Midwest or, or soybeans or whatever. So like the, the lowest hanging fruit, the least change for the greatest possible effect for California is like, let's go out there, let's have a movement, movement to harvest all the acorns that are falling on the ground and let's start there. You know, because that's already happening. We don't need to plant a single tree. Mm-hmm. They're already they're already dropping fruit. So, and I know that half that same scenario exists in a lot of regions is because we're so like myopic with our culin- our cultural culinary uh, pursuits that we we don't don't really notice the food that's just falling on the ground all around us. So. You know, foraging in an, in a suburban and an urban setting is is legitimate. You know, here in Santa Barbara, there's loquat batrias. Oh, don't even get me started on loquats, man! It's loquat season here. I've never lived in an area where they grow. There's so many trees around here between just planted out in public spaces and in people's yards that nobody is harvesting. Not even the ones in people's yards. Nobody's harvesting those. Nobody's harvesting the mulberries. I walk by every day so much food that people go to the store and pay many euros per pound to get that it like it's all for free out here. I don't know where that disconnect is. It's not even difficult to identify stuff. Yeah. And, and so that that's the first, you know, the, the major climate change we need is the climate change of the mind. Yeah. It's like change the climate between your ears and really start looking and you don't have any land. Well, I guarantee you there's dozens of trees nearby you fruit trees that are dropping edible food that you could harvest you don't need to have land the native americans never owned land this concept is yeah foreign yeah good point so yeah and for example loquat it's ubiquitous you know and there's so many products you can make with and it's called they call it nisperos where you're in yep nisperos yeah um so you can make a uh, an alcohol from the seed. You, the the leaves are actually really good for respiratory diseases. Hint hint. Uh, a leaf tea. <laughs> it's incredibly medicinal. The fruit is can be dried and preserved. It can be made into jam. You know, it's like, come on, people, let's start thinking outside of the box here. And it's and, not, you don't really have to start Oh, and those trees are hard. so loaded too. It's not even like you so, get a couple off of a tree. Like <laughs> I, could, I could go out there and fill like tubs worth just walking tubs. around my neighborhood. Yeah. And, and pigs love them. Chickens love them. So it's really, these are the, these are the leverage points that we have to look for. And, and that's part of this, this observational exercise. And I feel like, we've been sort of, we've been very disempowered to observe our, our natural surroundings yeah, because we've yeah. been bombarded. We've been bombarded with information and flashy color things and technology it takes our attention away. And it even like, it, it, it's like detrained our observational skills. So we need to retrain ourselves as, as, um, ob- is, with protracted and ob- uh, thoughtful observation, pato, you know, just, just walk around, check things out, see what works in your local climate, 
see what the the elders like the grandpas and the great grandmas are have in their garden mm-hmm. they're the the wisdom carriers and and if there's intact intact indigenous cultures in your area go meet with them ask them see what their food culture is and that's how we can really adapt our food system to fit the local climate because it is it's it's context dependent and we're such a we've homogenized our food system to such a point where the food diversity you know we're down from thousands and thousands of varieties of vegetable crops down to maybe several hundred which still seems like a lot but the the diversity of of seed stock that our grandparents had was was like light years beyond what we have access to and that's a real shame and we can't really go back there but with with trees luckily trees are so so long lived that it's not they haven't necessarily suffered such a decline as vegetable crops have um, a decline in diversity so they're still uh, living thriving in your area and you can collect seed you can take cuttings you can propagate these trees in a small scale you know you you talked about starting your nursery again youtube is your friend let's use technology for its its highest use is to learn how to propagate trees uh and it's species dependent you know every species has its own specific propagation technique and mulberry in particular the reason i uh, one of the reasons i like it is because it's so easy to propagate um from cutting. <laughs> you just stick a stick in the ground in many cases <laughs> that's it and, and it's, it's Dude, elderberry around here is another one like that you just stick a stick that's in the ground and it pops right back up that's right so vegetative propagation uh, asexual propagation those are the technical terms cloning mm-hmm. those are all very possible with uh, the moraceae the figs and mulberries and in fruit in the tropics the breadfruit and and whatnot oh yeah, and, yeah the figs were another one i did this year and, and the rosaceae like you probably have lots of pomegranates granada granada around yep. you i mean there's a city in spain named after granadas <laughs> Or whether the the city was named after the fruit or the fruit was named after the city, who knows? But they can be propagated by cuttings or by seed. And a lot of people think, oh well, you know, there's been this common, uh, it's a, a misnomer really that trees don't come true to type. Or like you plant a fruit tree seed, you won't get a good fruit from it. That is true in in the rare case. In it, that's the minority. The majority of trees, believe it or not, you can plant seed. Like you could even take a seed from an apple you get at the store, plant it, and chances are you're going to get an edible apple off of it. You, you maybe even if, if you've got a crab apple off of it, well, you can graft the top of it or you can make a uh, hard cider, you know, or feed it to your pigs. Yeah, exactly. So there's, there's no loss. Like worst case scenario, it's not what you were looking for, but it's never not useful to have planted that tree. That's right. You know, and they say the, the best time to plant a tree was 10 years ago. The next best time is now. So you, yep. you just start, start with, with what you have. And those, those resources are readily available to anyone. And you don't need to purchase a potting soil mix. You can use the, the soil that you have in your yard mixed with some a compost that you can make very inexpensively and with 
So point being that you don't have to have a big budget to start a nursery, to grow, and you could grow several hundred trees in a 10 square foot space, really, Mm -hmm. you know, to the, to the point where they're ready to be planted into the ground. And you can use old water bottle, recycled water bottles, milk cartons, plastic bags for your pots. You know, you don't need to go out and buy materials to do this. So it's, it's readily accessible to everyone. You know, it's non-discriminatory. It is, it is an equal opportunity for everyone to grow trees in their, in their yard and plant them out. And it, it does take time, but it doesn't, before you know it, your trees will be fruiting. I mean, I'm looking at a loquat tree. We were talking about loquats that I planted from seed about 10 years ago, and it's about 15 feet tall, and it's loaded with fruits right now. So it, it's the long game, but we, that's the only game we really have. And, and that, it's the best game in town is the long game. And you have to, because we're planting these trees, not only for us, but for our children. I have two kids and there's nothing better, you know, no more satisfying of a feeling than to see my children go out and pick fruit off of a tree that I planted. And so mm-hmm. that's really what we're, when you plant trees, you're really doing it for the future generations. And Talk about leaving will, a legacy beyond like an inheritance or these other things with kind of finite or invented value. This is something that right. has value, not just for, for humans, but for every other form of life anywhere you would plant them. That's right. If anything, I would rather leave an orchard to my family than a million dollars because I mean, yeah, maybe with a million dollars, they could plant their own orchard, but <laughs> but they can't have survived. planted it when you did. They can't go back in time. That's the big thing. That's right. That's right. So it is definitely, that's the legacy that I want to leave to my family and my community is trees everywhere, wherever they'll grow. And, and I'm not a native plant Nazi by any means. I, I think whatever works, whatever will grow, whatever will thrive because we, we have such, again, an, a myopic uh, perspective on landscape where if there's an invasive plant, we want to eradicate it and reintroduce what was there prior. And, but we'll, if you just take a step back, that invasive plant and you look at it, it's providing a service and it will actually create the conditions for regeneration if you just allow it. If we just can, can stand back and let the system go through its its evolution it might be a hundred years it might be 500 years eventually it's going to restabilize if we can just stop damaging it if we can Mm -hmm. just stop intervening in in a detrimental way we need to learn how to intervene in a regenerative way where we're actually assisting the evolution of the system from a climax or, or i should say from like a pioneer system, which is where most of the landscape and in in modern culture is at. Is it a pioneer? Is that a, 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 a you know? It's just had its disturbance to a climax ecosystem, which is an intact forest, savanna, grassland, whatever the context is. We need to rapidly transition more towards that climax ecosystem. So whatever we can do to assist the, the system to reach that point, 
is is really where we need to to focus our energy in my opinion very well said and on that inspiring note how about you tell our listeners a little bit about how they can get in touch with you how they can find out more about your company and and learn more about these topics in general great um yeah so my local company is called santa barbara organics Uh, i'm on the web at sborganics.com um, people can send me a message there. I have a little uh, gallery and that's, that's like my residential and small farm uh, management company where I do consulting and I, and I do some uh, tree plantings and pruning and, and for fruit trees and whatnot, uh, orchard care. Um, and then I have a design business that I had started with some colleagues, uh, Permaculture Design International. So that's permacultureintl.com. Um, they can find me on there if they're if it's more of an international project or a larger scale project. That's kind of the the portal that I've been moving those projects through. Um, and that's uh, more of a collaborative uh, design team where I I pull in associates from local areas, um, sort of serve as a networker for for people globally to to really connect with the the designers that are in their area. So those are two places people can find me is sborganics.com and permacultureintl.com. Um, so yeah, I think that should be, be enough, uh, <laughs> enough for people to reach out to me. Very exciting stuff. Well, Lauren, thank you so much. It was a real pleasure talking to you. I could tell that we could go on for a long time beyond this, but we'll keep it at this for now. And totally. uh, Let's stay in touch. I really look forward to staying in contact with you. Likewise. I really appreciate the time and yeah, inspiring what you're doing as well. And, you know, I just want to say to all your listeners, get on out, plant a tree. Your grandkids will thank you. Well said. All right. Take care. We'll talk again soon. All right. Thank you. Cheers. All right, that wraps things up for this week's episode. If you enjoyed this interview and want to find more like it, as well as articles and other resources, you can find the full library of previous podcasts at AbundantEdge.com. The best part is that you can search by category, topics, or keywords on our brand new website rather than scrolling through more than 140 interviews. I've spoken to experts on everything from growing your own food, building homes from natural materials, beekeeping, vermicompost, permaculture design techniques, and so much more. Before we go, I just want to say thank you so much to those of you who have taken the time to reach out to me via comments and emails. Your input helps a lot in making this show the open conversation and exchange of ideas that it's meant to be, and it helps me to make better content on the topics that you're interested in. If you have any insights, advice, suggestions, or questions, be sure to send them to me at info at and I'll look forward to being in touch. New episodes come out every Friday like clockwork, so don't forget to subscribe to the show through our website or through your favorite podcast streaming platform, and I'll catch you on next week's show.